just want to welcome you guys back. We got a brand new series called BC. It's a big secret. It's called, it, it means before Christ. Um, that's, that's all it means. And so, but this is why we want to do this series. Let me just set this up just real briefly is, um, you know, we spend a lot of time, especially, you know, we, in, in our Sunday school class, uh, which if, if you're not connected to a church somewhere, man, we'd love to have you a part of our church family here. We meet uh, for Sunday school every, every more, every Sunday morning at 915. Anyway, but we, uh, we spent a lot of time in, uh, in the New Testament. We thought, you know what, we need to, let's dig, let's do a deep dive into some Old Testament stuff. And uh, so th- this whole series will, will uh, include some, probably some stories that you are familiar with, uh, maybe that you grew up with. Um, even if you did not grow up in the church, we're going to talk about some stories that you probably know, at least at some level, because they've, they've permeated the culture. Um, but we're also going to share some stories of the Old Testament that are pretty random, that maybe you have not really done a deep dive into. And so uh, tonight we're going to see uh, that the book and the story of Jonah is about God's great mercy leading us to great repentance that points us to a great Savior. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So open your Bibles to the book of Jonah. That's where we're going to be. If you need to go to the table of contents, feel free. I have to every time I get into the, the minor prophets of the Bible. So just open the table of contents get to your book of Jonah. Uh, that's where we're going to be. As you get there, let me just share really briefly a few uh, fun facts about this book. The, the main characters are obviously Jonah. Uh, we got God. And we got Nineveh and those who live in Nineveh. And then we got some, some uh, supporting characters, some supporting actors, uh, the sailors on the boat. Um, but basically, this story is God telling Jonah, I want you to go to this city called Nineveh. Because Nineveh is his worst enemy, his worst nightmare. Uh, Nineveh is, is known as the terrorists of, ancient, of the ancient world. Not from a standpoint of like they're terrorists like we know them. They're terrorists because their reign was, was characterized by brutality and uh, cruel, cruelty and terror. Like their whole, basically their whole philosophy was we're going to scare you and terrify you so much that you will willingly fall under our command. Some of the things in the history books that they are known for, and this is going to get a little graphic, but this is, I want to paint a picture. One of the things that they used to do when they would go in, into a conquering city is they would pile up all of the dead soldiers and they would bring them back to Nineveh and they would fillet them alive and stick their skin on the walls surrounding Nineveh. Another thing they would do is they would take their enemies and they would uh, run a pole all the way through their torso and they would plant that pole outside the gates of their city so that when you came into Nineveh, you were terrified. And they did stuff that, I mean, like one of the things, they would, they would build walls and pyramids out of the skulls of their enemies. Wherever they went, that's what they would do. The Ninevites were terrors of the ancient world. And these are the people that in just a moment we're going to see God send Jonah to. So let me just recap this story really briefly if you've never heard it. So you have this prophet Jonah. And it starts off very quickly where God says, hey, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, and I want you to speak out against them. Basically, what he means is you need to go there, call them out for their sin, call them out for their wickedness, and call them to repentance back to God. And Jonah thought about this for a quick second, and he was like, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to go this way. And he takes off to this place called Tarshish, which if you have any idea of the global map, like you've got Israel, 
And then you've got, well, from your guys, you've got Israel and then the Mediterranean Sea and on the Strait of Gibraltar on, in Spain is on the very edge of Spain before you get to the Atlantic Ocean was this city called Tarshish. He's like, I'm going there. It was 2,500 miles in the opposite direction that God had told him to go. And on the way, they, they, he gets on a boat, buys a ferry. He's like, I'm out of here. We're, we're going we're gonna to flee. I don't want to do that. Because, I mean, I can't blame uh, Jonah a whole lot because that would be a terrible, terrible idea to go to Nineveh and call them out for their, their wickedness, um, especially knowing who they are and what they do. And so he gets on a boat. Shortly after they get on the boat, there's a huge storm that hits the boat. People are freaking out. And this is where you and I know this story. Because what happens to Jonah on this boat? He gets tossed over. You're the one. He admits, I'm running from God. They're like, all right. He's like, you got to throw me over. And then the storm will stop. And they throw him over. And then what happens? We all know this one. He gets swallowed by a, a whale or a fish or a huge whatever it is. And he gets swallowed and he lives. He's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And then he gets thrown up on the shore. And then God says, Jonah, have you got the picture yet? Go to Nineveh and speak out against their wickedness. And he's like, okay, I'll do it. So he goes and he speaks out against Nineveh and lo and behold, they listen to him and they repent. And, and we're gonna get into this in a few minutes and Jonah goes out of town to watch and see what happens. And that's the story of Jonah. So here's what I want to do now. I want to rewind the tape back to, and I want to kind of walk through all of God's interactions with Jonah and with the Ninevites with one particular lens, the mercy of God. The mercy of God. Because that's what this story is about. As I said before, this is a story about God's great mercy leading us to great repentance that points us to a great Savior. And so if you are in Jonah chapter 1, Verses one through three, here we go. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And this brings me to my first point, and that is this. God shows his mercy by sending Jonah. And you may say, well, what do you mean, Andy? Well, what I mean is this. God could have done it. God did not need Jonah. But he said, hey, Jonah, you're my guy. I want you to go and deliver a message of repentance. And that blows my mind because in this day and age, we do the same thing. God allows us to be a part of what he's doing in this world. I've read the Old Testament. I know God could just speak it. He could have showed up in the middle of Nineveh, and he didn't. He gave something to Jonah because he wants his people to be a part of his plan. And so the first mercy of God is that he sent Jonah. The crazy thing is, is Jonah didn't want anything to do with it. And you know why? Because he hated the Ninevites. He hated them. He did not want to follow God's instruction. Let me give you, maybe paint this picture for you to, to help you understand the, the, the fear and the hatred and the disdain that, that um, Jonah would have had for the Ninevites. Imagine yourself in New York City in the 1940s and you were a Jewish man. And God tells you, I want you 
to go to Berlin, Germany and speak in the capital of the Nazi empire against the evil that they have done. Whoa. Uh, God, I'm a Jewish man and they, did I hear you right? <laughs> That's Jonah. He knows it's certain death. These people are evil. But that, in a modern day example, that's what Jonah is being instructed to do. And it's easy to get into a discussion of why he didn't go. I mean, we know the Ninevites were terrible. I mean, logically, emotionally, and politically, he was completely justified in going the other direction. But therein lies the problem. Although God showed his mercy by sending Jonah, Jonah trusted his feelings more than he trusted his Lord. And he said, I'm going to follow my feelings. And he followed them right into rebellion. And, this, and as we are going to see, we, we, when we run from the Lord, you will never get to where you're going. And you will pay a far higher price than you ever dreamed of paying. But when you go the Lord's way, not only will you arrive at a better destination, he will pay your fare. Because he's planned it out. If he's called you, he will provide for you. Let's continue in the story, verses four, five, and six. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the sailors were afraid. Each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it from them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and fallen asleep. So the captain came to him in a frantic, what do you mean you're sleeping? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God you worship will give us thought and that we may not perish. This brings me to my second point, that God shows his mercy by sending a storm. And that may seem backwards. Have you ever thought about a storm in your life actually being an act of God's love and mercy towards you? Because here's what God was doing. He, Jonah was rebelling. Jonah was running from God. And God said, well, I know that's going to be bad for you, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send a storm your way, and I'm going to stop you from going any farther away from me than you need to go. Have you ever thought or seen a storm of God's loving and merciful hand in your life? It's an interesting idea. Because we tend to only see difficulty as fighting, I'm sorry, we only tend to see uh, difficulty as God working against us. That it's not for our good. When in fact, when you look at scripture and you read the Bible, you see that God often uses difficulty for your good. You see, the sailors were terrified. The boat was, I mean, these are professional uh, mariners. They were professional sailors. And the storm was so bad that they thought the ship was going to sink and break apart. So they're just, they're tossing everything overboard to lighten the load so they're up higher on the water. They are losing their mind. And they're having an impromptu prayer meeting on the top deck of the boat, calling out to whoever might be listening. They're desperate. But the irony of the story of Jonah is that the one man on board that boat who had a relationship with the one true God, who knew his word and who worshiped the one true God, he was asleep. The one guy who knew the one God was sleeping. 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon says it this way. He said, regarding this story, all around us, there is an uproar of storms. Yet some professing Christians are able, like Jonah, to go to sleep inside the ship. Which brings an interesting question. Are we asleep? Are we asleep to what God is doing around us? Are we asleep to what God's trying to do within you? Are we asleep? Which brings another question. What does a sleeping Christian look like? What does it look like to be asleep as a Christian? To be hiding down below deck, sleeping while there's a storm raging? As you know what I'm talking about, look at our world. It is a you-know-what storm out there. Our world is falling apart. Our world is broken. The hope that the world offers only offers more brokenness. And so what does it look like for a Christian to be asleep? There's a guy named David Gudzik that I like to read. He's a great commentator of the Bible. And he listed six things of what it looks like for a Christian to be asleep. I want to read them to you. Just as Jonah slept in a place where he hoped no one would find him, Christians like to hide in church where no non-Christian will find them. Sleeping Christians stay busy attending programs instead of tending to the Father's business and attending to God's word. Sleeping Christians don't like or see the need for prayer. Sleeping Christians don't know or don't want to know what's actually going on around them. They're too busy for it. It's not my business. It's not my place to speak up. The sleeping Christian is in danger and they don't even know it because the sleeping Christian plays around with sin. We tolerate a little rebellion and make excuses for our disobedience. It's not that big of a deal. It's not hurting anybody. Like I'm a pretty good guy. Like I'll, this is my thing. Sleeping Christian. We let sin creep in slowly and surely and get a grip on us because we're asleep. We don't even know that there's a storm raging above us. And lastly, he says, sleeping Christians snooze on while the world needs their message and the testimony of the only God that can truly save them. Did you see what happened in this story? All the sailors are up top, freaking out, praying to whatever God would listen. And they have to come find Jonah to say, dude, wake up. Maybe your God can help. And his God can help because he is the God, he says, that made the sea and the land. But Jonah was asleep. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, are you asleep? And what will it take to wake you up to the reality that we are living in a broken world and Jesus Christ is the only one that can calm the storm. There is no pleasure, there is no amount of money, there is no amount of comfort, there is no amount of vacation that will be a salve that will actually heal the wounds of this world. When are we gonna wake up? Because Jesus has called each one of us. Jonah was given a directive, go to Nineveh And before Jesus died in Matthew 28, he said, go, make disciples of all nations, for I am with you. We all, as Christians, have a directive from our Lord. So we are, Jonah is not alone. We're in good company. Let's continue. 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 17. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Fast forward to chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. This is my third point. God's mercy leads us to repentance. God's mercy leads us to repentance because what happens when Jonah is in the belly of that whale is he prays. And he repents from his rebellion. And he puts God back in the place which he deserves. He said, I will follow you. Did you catch this? Jonah rebelled, but God loved him and was so merciful towards him, he sent a storm to stop him. Not to kill him, not to drown him, but to save him. And he sent a fish to swallow him to keep him. And in that fish, we see Jonah partake in what we call biblical repentance. And I thought, you know what, we can't talk about biblical repentance without actually explaining what that is. So I wanna give you three things that biblical repentance requires. Because biblical repentance is not just feeling bad for what we do and be like, no, God will forgive me. God's a God of grace and love and mercy, he'll forgive me. That's not biblical repentance. Number one, biblical repentance begins with conviction of sin. In John 16, eight, it says, the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. You must know what is right before you can know what is wrong. There can be no turning back unless there is a first a convict, a conviction that you're going the wrong way. It starts with conviction. After conviction, the second thing is contrition. Another way to say contrition is brokenness. There needs to be a brokenness of the reality and the understanding of my sin. We see Peter, like we, we came off Easter weekend not too long ago, we see Peter in Matthew 26. After he denied Christ three times, after he promised Christ he would not deny him. I would never do that. And then he does it. It says he left the courtyard and he wept bitterly. He wept. He didn't cry. He didn't feel bad. He was broken by his rebellion. And he was broken by his sin. Have you ever felt that brokenness? Have you ever saw your sin to a point where it broke you? That you realize left to myself, this is who I am. Apart from Christ, this is what I'll do. Have you ever felt that? Because that would be an accurate road to repentance. And number three is change. There must be conviction, there must be contrition, and there must be change. You see, repentance carries with it the idea of changing, a changing of the mind, a changing of the attitude, a changing of our ways. Paul writes a letter to Corinthians, uh, in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Let me read that again. This is, this is one of the greatest verses when it comes to what biblical repentance and biblical salvation looks like. For the sorrow, the brokenness that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. 
leading. Repentance leads to salvation. Not the other way around. As Christians, I knew I grew up in a church where I was like, well, I just need to ask Jesus into my heart and then I'm good. There was no talk of confession. There was no talk of repentance. And there was absolutely no talk of those two things together. <laughs> None. It was, do you love Jesus? Ask him into your heart and you'll be saved. And there was no confession. There was no repentance. And I wonder why my, my faith felt weird. I had never come to the end of myself. I'd never had my sin thrown in my face and was sorrowful over who I am and what I've done and what I can do. And so biblical repentance requires conviction. Man, pray for conviction. I'll tell you another mercy of God, that he doesn't convict you of everything at the same time. Did you ever think about that? Like he doesn't read the list. Like, I get, like with my kids sometimes I'm like, okay. Here's what I've heard your mother tell me you've done since you got home. Boom, 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 boom. You know, like, and it's just like, one of my sons is very sensitive. And uh, he will just, like, just melt into the floor with tears. You know, like, oh, God. You know, like he's, he's got it down to an art form. Um, but what a great mercy of God. That he just shows us one thing at a time. He says, hey, let me convict you of this. Okay, be sorrowful over it. Now change, let's move. And as we work, and that's called sanctification, as we move along, all of a sudden he says, hey, Andy, here, here's, here's one more thing. Well, let's convict you of this. And he sharpens us and he grows us because he loves us and he cares for us. His mercy is great, which leads to a great repentance and points us to a great Savior. Have you ever gone through a storm of repentance? Maybe a better question is, are you willing to go through a storm of Repentance. Because I'll be honest with you, repentance, it sucks. It, it just does. But the other side of it is wonderful. That's the freedom we talk about in Christ. When I turn from the things that I'm chasing and I turn to Jesus, my life changes, my attitude changes, everything about me changes. That's the transformation of Jesus. It's all hinged on repentance, turning to Jesus. And that's what we see Jonah do. Let's continue on, chapter three, verses one through three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is my fourth point. God shows his mercy by restoring Jonah. He failed, he ran, he rebelled. But God shows his mercy, his undeserved favor by restoring Jonah. God sends Jonah a second time. You know why? Because a repentant heart is one that God can and will use. Now Jonah's ready. He had walked through repentance. He had walked through the storm. And guys, I gotta be honest with you, this, for the Christian, this is our hope. This is our hope. That yeah, I know what I've done, I know what I'm capable of, I know what I've run to, I know what I've chased, but I confess it, I repent, I turn, and God says, okay, let's get busy, let's go. Let's go. You're not worthless because of what you've done. 
You're not unuseful to God and his kingdom because of what you've been involved in. Satan would love to convince you that because you've done this, because you've gone there, because you thought this, because you looked at that, oh, how could you? God can't use you. Look at Jonah. This is the gospel. He repented, he was forgiven, and he was restored. We have been made right with God, not because of our goodness and merit, but because of his grace and his mercy. It's not our goodness and our merit. It's his grace and his mercy. Jonah is the evidence that no one is too far from God to redeem. Some of you need to hear that tonight. No one is too far for God to redeem. That's what he does. He'll bring a storm, absolutely, but you're not too far. If we are willing to repent, God is ready to restore. If, if we are willing to repent and turn to God, he is ready to restore. And at this point in the story, Jonah is rewriting his story. If the story ended here, we would only know Jonah as the guy who ran, the guy who disobeyed. But this is where he starts to rewrite it. God restores him. And so what he does is he heads off to Nineveh. And I'm sure he's terrified. Can't, I mean, he wouldn't have been human if he wasn't. He's walking into the teeth of the lion and he's about to walk in to sure death. And like I said before, he walks into town, speaks the word that the Lord has given him <laughs> and they repent. They are broken. Word gets to the king of the Assyrian empire in Nineveh and he makes a decree, we are going to all repent and he puts on sackcloth and ash, a sign of mourning and weeping and sorrow. Like this dude was serious. He, it says, and he even said, put the sackcloth and ashes on the livestock. The animals will repent. <laughs> and Jonah's just like, what? And this is what happens. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Chapter four, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And Jonah was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is it not this Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee tar to Tarshish, for I knew, get this, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to die than to live. Jonah ran because he knew God was gracious. Jonah ran because he knew God was merciful. He ran because he hated the Ninevites so much that he could not stand God being gracious to them. That's a twist. That's a crazy story. So number five is that God's mercy wins out over his wrath. He was going to destroy the entire city but it says God relented of what he said he was going to do. God's mercy wins out over his wrath. 
God has wrath. There are times in the Old Testament, look at the Exodus, it is God who sent the plagues. God cares about sin. God cares about disobedience. God cares about evil. God cares about wickedness. And that's what he's calling them out of. And lo and behold, they listened. I think it's hilarious that Jonah got mad. He was exceedingly disappointed, displeased. You see, God is merciful and patient because he desires that no one perishes. 2 Peter 3, 9. Write this down. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. His desire for you is not to smite you. His desire for you is not to bring pain to you and to punish you. That's the, that's the message we get, that God's just waiting to get you. Now, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, Jesus did not come to catch you in your sin. He came to set you free from the sin that has caught you because he does not desire for anyone to perish. He is merciful. And so even the Ninevites repent. And Jonah is exceedingly displeased like, honestly, Jonah's the first preacher ever to be ticked off about how effective his sermon was. Like, he's ticked. And this is my favorite part of the story, not because it's a great part of the story. It's just, I, 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 I kind of appreciate Jonah. Like, at this point in the story, he leaves the town and goes on a hill. And he sits down to watch what's going to happen. And if I'm thinking, like, I'm getting in Jonah's head, he's sitting there pouting on the side, like, all right, let's see how long that lasts. It's not going to last. God, anytime, do your thing. Right? He's just waiting because he's displeased. It says in chapter four, verse five and six, Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. And this is crazy. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Number six is that God's mercy displays his kindness. God's mercy displays his kindness. In the middle of Jonah throwing his hissy fit, in the middle of Jonah showing zero care for 120,000 people, God appointed a plant to grow up over him and shade him to relieve him of his discomfort. God's mercy displays his kindness. And it made me think, you know, Jonah's a bit of a drama queen here. He is asked for God to kill him because he was gracious towards the Ninevites, right? Like, I feel like he's sitting on the side of this hill, this random plant overnight grows over him and he's just sitting there like, I can't even, I cannot even. God, what, what is happening here? I, no. Like that's kind of, I feel like Jonah's just, like he's throwing a hissy fit. He can't stand it. And it made me think this. I love it when God's grace and mercy is for me. I love it when it's for me. I love singing our songs because I know that God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness is for me. But then I look at Jonah and I wonder, am I as excited for God's love and his mercy and grace for somebody else, especially the person you hate. 
the one person, or maybe five, I don't know, that you're like, okay, God, anytime. If you want to take them, I'm okay with that. I'll go to their funeral, but I'm okay. Because that's what Jonah's saying. His desire is not the same desire as God. Right? His heart is not aligned with God. Are we patient with people like the Lord is? Is our desire for people the same as the Lord's desire for people? Fill in this blank. Would I get excited if blank came to faith in Christ and sat next to me at church next week? Would I rejoice at that? Would I be excited for those we love and for those we despise? Are we excited for those we work with and those we live near? Is our desire the same as the Lord for those who think differently and vote differently than us? What is the line for you where you're like, I'm done with you? I can't even, no more, you're, you're done. That's Jonah. That's our Jonah, that's our inner Jonah. Like, you are too far gone, I'm not even gonna talk to you, I don't wanna look at you, I'm not, no, mm-mm. Unfollow, whatever, block. That's Jonah. And it finishes up, it says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Because what happened was God gave the plant and the next night he took it away. <laughs> and he was ticked. Again, he was very displeased. And it says, do you, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah, get this, Jonah says, yes, I, I, I am right. I, I'm justified in being mad. You took the plant away from me. I'm discomfort. Like, what's going on? Like, he actually says yes. You know where this is going. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And and should not I put pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You're mad about a plant that you had nothing to do with that just shaded you for a day, but you're gonna let 120,000 people perish and you don't care. This is like the most, like, this is the most ridiculous disconnect ever. As the great uh, theologian John Chris would say, check your heart, Jonah. Because his heart is not for the people, it's for a plant. I think sometimes our heart is more for a program or comfort than it is for people. And Jonah is that guy. And this brings me to my last point, number seven tonight. God, in his mercy, confronts us. In his mercy, he will send a storm for you. And in his mercy, he will rescue you from that storm. And in his mercy, he will restore you. And in his mercy, he will lead you to repentance. But you know what? In his mercy, he will also confront you. God's mercy is not just lovey-dovey. It's for your good and for his glory. And he does not mess around with his glory. One of my favorite things about this story is we do not get a nice bow on this story. That is literally how it ends. End of the chapter. We're left hanging. God confronts Jonah on his hard and and, uh, 
uncaring, unmerciful, ungracious heart. He says, how dare you? You're mad about a plant, but you don't pity people. End of, end of the chapter, that's it, we, we're left. You see, at the end of the day, Jonah needed saving as badly as the people God sent him to. Let me say that again. Jonah needed saving as badly as those God has sent him to. Here's the problem. Jonah's struggle was self-righteousness. I'm better. I'm God's man. He's lucky to have me. I follow all the rules. I'm good. They're bad. But here's the reality. Both the self-righteous and the wicked both need saving. We need to wake up. Quit sleeping in the bottom of the boat and wake up. Whether it's the wickedness and the obvious rebellion of our life or the self-righteousness that we hold on to so that we can sit and judge everybody else. We can sit on the side of the hill and watch the city burn. Or we can be for our city. We can be for our coworkers. We can be for our friends. We can be for our neighbors and say, you know what? This world is broken and this ship is sinking and the only hope there is is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Jonah needed saving as badly as those God sent him to. I wanna leave you with three questions. As we go into our 120 seconds, these are the questions I want you to just kind of pray through and think through. Number one, is your life characterized by running from God or running to God? If we were to just be able to map out your life, are the decisions you're making are the people that you're hanging out with, the people that you're dating, is your dating relationship, are the, you know, all those things, do they characterize a heart that is running towards God or rebelling and running from him? Is your life characterized by running from or to God? Secondly, is your faith in Jesus Christ characterized by a lifestyle of biblical repentance? Is your faith characterized by a continual cycle of biblical repentance? Because like I said, we don't just repent one time. That is the message I got as a kid, and many of you probably did. Hey, just confess, ask for forgiveness, and you're good. It's a, it's a transaction. Like when they asked Jesus, how, how often should we forgive someone? It's like 777 times. And I think the reason he said that is you need to forgive that person every single time you see them until you forget that you need to forgive them. And it's the same thing with repentance. It's not a one-time thing. It is a continual humbling of ourselves before the Lord and say, God, search me and know me. Take anything away from me that is not of you. I confess, I repent, and I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna pursue you. And then when we, when we go down that road, and it's time to like, God, show me again. What, what else is there? My desire is for you. Is your faith characterized by a lifestyle of biblical repentance? And lastly, is your heart aligned with God's heart for the people around you? You've heard me say it before in here. We are not about building a Christian country club. We are about building God's kingdom, not crossings, God's kingdom. And just like Jonah, we have to ask ourselves, is my heart for people the way that God's heart is for people? Because in the end, the story of Jonah is a picture of what's to come in Jesus Christ. Jonah didn't know it, but we do. We're on the other side. 
We're in the AD side. Jonah's in the BC. You see, God gave Jesus an instruction to go and preach to the lost and the wicked, yet he obeyed perfectly. Jesus slept in the bottom of a boat in the midst of a storm, not because he was running, but because he knew he could calm the storm. Jesus was, Jesus was thrown into the sea of judgment on our behalf, not because of his rebellion, but to take our place and pay the price for our rebellion. Jesus spent three days and three nights in the depths only to be victorious and defeat sin, to be restored to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. You see, Jesus is the better Jonah. And that's our king. That's our savior. That's who we come to when we confess and we say, make me new. That's the Jesus we worship. Jonah said it right. God, I know you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And it is the God in whom we worship. It is the God in whom we surrender. So let's take 120 seconds. Think on those questions. If you got somebody next to you, pray with them if you wanna pray with them. If you need to repent and confess, repent and confess. Do not waste another minute rebelling and going to Tarshish. Turn and go to Jesus. Don't let this moment go. As always, our prayer team will be in the back and afterwards our prayer team will be in the front. So let's do business with the Lord. I'm just gonna leave you to pray for 120 seconds and then we will worship again. God, I pray for us. I pray that your spirit would lead us and guide us, Lord. That you would convict us when we need to be convicted. That you would lead us and we would listen obediently. That we might be a light in this broken and dark world. So God, I pray you'd renew us and restore us every day as we get into your word. And you would send us off to our Ninevehs with a message of hope and grace and mercy and repentance. Praise things in your name. Amen.